Reading is from uh, Romans chapter 1, starting to read at verse 1. This is Paul addressing the believers in Rome. <clears throat> Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Thanks, Val. Morning, all. Do keep our Bibles open then in Romans as we begin our new and uh, exciting series together. Don't know if you can remember where you were. September the 11th, 2001. I can remember exactly where I was. I was in Cambridge. I'd not long finished uni. Been a Christian about two months, and I moved to Cambridge to do a training year with Christians in sport. And I moved in with a family in a little village just outside Cambridge. And I woke up on that Tuesday morning. Family had gone off to work. I think I was still in uni mode. Woke up a little bit late. Wandered downstairs into the lounge, popped on the TV, bowl of shredders in hand. And I remember the news flash coming up on the screen. And the first reports that came through were actually pretty vague. They said there'd been some sort of gas explosion in the, in the Twin Towers in New York. 
But obviously as you sat there and you watched these events unfold and you could do nothing but watch them unfold before your eyes, the true extent of what happened that day became clear. One of the great terrorist atrocities with the two planes flying into the Twin Towers. I remember being captivated. I sat there for three hours watching this unfold. And you see, life just stopped right that day. Wherever you were, life just stopped. People in school, lessons stopped. Radios went on. People tuned in. People had their TVs on. They followed the events on the internet. Whatever you were doing in life, it just came to a stop that day. Because of the size of that news. News that gripped the whole world. News that shook the very foundations of this world. Monumental news, right? And when it comes to the gospel, which is the main content of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, that word gospel that you see there in verse 1, have a look down. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. That word gospel carries with it the same weight and the same force. It is news of extraordinary proportions. It is news that should shake the very foundations of this world. It's news that means life will never be the same again. And of course the content of the news, right, couldn't be more different. Because the content of the news of 9-11 was news of evil in action. It was news of despair and suffering and pain. When it comes to the gospel of God, the good news of God... The news couldn't be any more different because it's news of life. It's news of joy. It's news of peace. It's news of restoration. It's news of gladness as the angels bring the message when Jesus was born. It's good news of great joy for all people. But it's still news today that should shake the very foundations of planet Earth if we've understood it properly. And that's Paul's longing for us as we work through Romans that we would get to grips with the richness and the depth and the fullness of this gospel message, this powerful gospel message. But before we dive into some of the detail, I think it'd be good to take a little step back as we begin this series to look at the background and the context of this letter. As we think about the church in Rome, Paul writes to a church or to a gathering, splattering of churches across the city of Rome, predominantly Gentile churches. And Rome, of course, was a hugely significant city, right? The capital of Rome, capital of the Roman Empire, a vast empire stretching a quarter of the way across this globe, even in 57 AD. When Paul penned this letter, Rome had a population of over a million people. It was a vast city of influence. You're probably aware of this little phrase here, yeah? All roads lead to Rome. Why? Because it was the centre of everything, right? It was the centre of the modern world. It was the centre of prestige and wealth. It was the centre of commerce. It was the centre of power. It was the centre of decision making. It was the centre of everything. Everything led to Rome. It was a city of such huge significance and therefore for the gospel as well, right? Because imagine if the gospel really took hold in the city of Rome. If Paul could encourage these 
fledgling churches around Rome under severe persecution, if only he could encourage them. Imagine the impact not only on Rome itself, but the whole Roman Empire, as all these roads that lead to Rome, as the gospel went out in the other direction, to the four corners of this globe. But when Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome, he hadn't yet seen them face to face. He'd not been to Rome at this point. Have a look down in your Bibles at verse 11 of chapter 1. Look what Paul says. I long to see you. He's not been there yet face to face. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. Paul longed to get to Rome to see these guys face to face, that he might encourage the church that the gospel might flourish and expand. And it was a longing that was satisfied. Because if you flick back to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, Paul, three years after he penned this letter, does arrive in Rome, under Roman guard, and he spends two years under house arrest in this capital city, preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's probably because when he writes, he hadn't yet visited these people, that he actually gives us his longest and most extensive account of the gospel message because he wants to be sure they've got it. He's not spoken face to face. So he gives us real clarity and fullness and richness in all that the gospel message is. And it's a big letter, and it's a deep letter, and it's a full letter. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher of the 20th century, he actually spent 13 years, I've just checked it out, Friday, his Friday night sermon series, he preached verse by verse, and it took him 13 years to preach through these 16 chapters. We've taken a slightly different approach in our mornings. We're giving it a blast in 10 sessions. So we've got 10 sermons on this rich, rich letter. So be ready, because we're going to move through at decent pace which means we're not going to be able to pick up on all the detail, but we want to look at the key themes that Paul addresses that run through this letter. So let us turn to Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, because in these two verses we have the headline for the letter. You know how a headline works, right? It captures you, and then underneath you get an expansion of what that headline is all about. Romans 1, 16 and 17 encapsulates the main themes of this great letter that then run all the way through these 16 chapters. And this is what Paul says. It's on the screen. Becky's too sharp for me. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul, who pens this letter, is an apostle. Romans 1, verse 1. That means he's met the risen Jesus. He met him on the road to Damascus. It's the key qualification of an apostle. Someone who's met the risen Jesus and has been commissioned personally by him for a specific task. And Paul's task was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul is an apostle. He had a unique role at this particular point in the history of the church. Yet Paul is a sinner. 
Just like me. Just like you. Romans chapter 7, we'll get there. He's broken just like we are. Yet, as a broken, sinful human being, he can still say, I'm not ashamed. Not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed to align myself with Christ. I'm not ashamed to be known as a follower of Jesus. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Not a power or one of many powers, but the power of God for salvation to bring people like us back into a living relationship with the God of this universe. It's powerful to save. It's powerful to take people to heaven forever. You see, the gospel isn't just big news, not just monumental news. It's good news. It's news that should make you dance. It's news that does something in the very core of your being that stirs up something. It's not just news out there. It's real and it's personal to every single one of us today. And it's powerful to bring people to heaven forever. And so the question I must ask you right at the beginning of this series, as we embark upon it together, is this. Do you believe that as you're sat there? It's easy to say it, right? It's the verse of the year. Some of you will have learnt it. Not ashamed of the gospel, power of God, salvation for all who believe, first Jew, then Gentile. You can say it, but do you believe it? Do you believe contained within these 16 chapters of this magnificent letter is the power to take people to heaven forever? And does your life then begin to reflect it? Because I think it's my prayer and hope at the start of this series that our lives would begin to reflect that fact as our hearts absorb it, that the gospel is monumental, life-changing news that takes people to heaven forever. That's the big picture. But as we zoom in on our chapters today, which is actually chapter 1 through to pretty much the end of chapter 3, here's the title that I've been given this morning, In the Dock. And it's a good title, because if you were to skim through those first three chapters of this letter, you would see it loaded with legal words, words that you would associate with the court of law, righteousness, justice, guilt, condemnation comes later in the letter. It's loaded with these legal words, because Paul takes us into the courtroom. That's the setting for what's going on here. It's the heavenly courtroom. And I want you to immerse yourself in that courtroom. Think who's there. What's it like? Because there are two key characters that Paul introduces to in the heavenly courtroom. And the first one is there on the screen already. It's God himself. And God in these verses is depicted as the righteous judge, the just judge, the good and perfect judge. Have a look down at verse 17, the second part of our headline. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel reveals the righteousness or the rightness of God. How is it revealed? It's revealed in God's judgment against all that is wrong in this world. Have a look at the following verse, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people. God's righteousness is revealed as his judgment is revealed. You see, the perfect creator of this world will hold this world to account for the way that it is lived and the way that it is treated him. 
God can't just sweep sin and brokenness and pain and hurt and all the rubbish that we see at 9-11 and all the rubbish within the human heart or the rubbish in this world. He can't just sweep it under the carpet and forget about it. Because God is so good, he will hold this world to account. And you see, that's actually pretty bad news at the beginning because the last part of Romans chapter 1 is a pretty devastating snapshot of the character of humanity. Have a look from verse 29. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, etc. Oh, it's a devastating snapshot of the human heart. And it's not surprising when we understand the perfections and the goodness and the holiness and the righteousness of God that God's judgment will inevitably fall. Romans 2 verse 2. God's judgment will fall on this world. But he makes it perhaps clearest in Romans 2 verse 5. Have a look on the screen or down at your Bibles. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says, by nature, the human heart is stubborn. It refuses to change. It refuses to admit it as wrong. It refuses to come back to God. To repent is to turn around. That's all repent means, to turn around from the life we've been living and to come back to God and to say sorry. But Paul, probably in tears as he writes this, says the human heart's stubborn and it's unrepentant and it refuses to come back to God. And do you see the consequence? Because God is so righteous, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Like the floodwaters behind a mighty dam, yeah? God, in his goodness, is holding back judgment. Have a look down at verse 4 of chapter 2. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God, in his sheer goodness, like a dam, is holding back his judgment. He's holding back justice against this world because he wants people to come back to himself to repent to come and say sorry for sin and find forgiveness in Christ and he longs them to come back but one day God will have to administer justice because justice is right and the floodwaters of God's judgment sluice gates will be opened and they will wash across this land And not one person will stand without Christ on that day. You see, without a saviour, we will stand before God in the dock, in the heavenly courtroom, and be found guilty without Christ, without a mediator to stand on our behalf. Doesn't that change everything? That future reality, the heavenly courtroom, the perfect, just, good God who made this world, that moment changes everything in the now, doesn't it? 
Life, behavior, work, witness, everything should be radically altered in light of the gospel and the righteousness of God. But there is another character who we've also already been introduced to, really, that I've alluded to. There's people. In this courtroom, it's not just God. There's humanity in there. And they are depicted as the guilty defendant in these verses. Have a look down at Romans chapter 3. I'm going to just read from verse 10 through to verse 18. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. See what Paul's saying? We are all guilty. All No one, no one, no one, not even one, not even one, all have turned away. Paul couldn't make it any clearer, right? He uses repetition to drive home the point. And if you're a parent or a teacher in this room, you'll know how that works. Because if there's something really significant to communicate or transmit to somebody else, you'll say it again and again and again until it's sunk in. Paul says we've got to get this that all of humanity stands guilty before God without Jesus. Because what have they done, verse 12? What have we done? We've turned away. We've turned away from the living God. We were made to know him and love him and walk with him in perfect harmony and joy through this world as he intended, but we've turned away. We've turned away from the living God and we've said, my life, my time, my money, my gifts, my world, me. I'm going to go my way. I'm going to do things how I want to do them. And we've stuck up the spiritual V's at God and said, God, thanks, but no thanks. We've turned away. You see, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. It's in here that we've turned away. We see all the rubbish on the news, we see all the things that happen, but the core of the problem lies in here, in our attitude towards God. Because we've turned away in our hearts. That's Romans 1. We've taken the things God gives us, and we've gone after them. We've made idols of the things that God has created. And we've rejected the Creator. And the good giver of all things. We've turned away from God in our heart. And it's a problem inside every single human heart. And you know what? Some people mask it better than others. Maybe people have had a a better education or a a more loving upbringing. And people know how to hold themselves together. and, And they look more moral and they look better and they look superior in moral ways. But the problem's still there. The problem's there in every single one of us. And God sees it. It's why there's no witnesses in the heavenly courtroom. God doesn't need them. Because the God who made this world sees every attitude, every behavior, every thought, every deed. He sees the whole lot and he sees hearts that have rejected him. But maybe 
the bit that gets me most in these verses, verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That verse just rattles with me a little bit. Because I know so many people in life that I know and love, family, for starters, but friends. And there's no fear. There's no reverence. There's no regard. There's no recognition of God. Walking through life oblivious to these realities that we're talking about this morning. And why is there no fear? Because they're blind to one of two things. They're either blind to who God is, as creator and as judge, or they're blind to who they are, as the guilty defendants. And people are walking through life oblivious, without a saviour. I think a huge part of our work, if you're a Christian here this morning, as we think about our witness to the world, as we think about the gospel in Rome and and our witness to the surrounding areas and to our friends and family, surely a great part of our work, is it not, as hard as this might be, is to wake people up to the reality of who God is and who people are without a saviour. Because without Jesus, we're, we're shot. Every single one of us. Which brings us finally to Jesus. And the question that I'm going to put up on the screen here, it's a bit wordy, but I think it makes sense. How can I be in the right with a righteous God when I'm unrighteous? In light of God, the righteous judge, and me, the guilty defendant, here's the question I've got to be asking. How? How can I, me, broken, sinful me, ever be okay, ever be in a right and perfect relationship with such a righteous, good and perfect God when I'm broken to the very core of my being? How? And this is where I've got to relax a little bit because the answer to this question isn't in my verses. The answer comes next week when we pick up in chapter 3, verse 21. But I've got to give you a flavour because I can't leave us where we are. You see what Paul does in this next little section? He does two things. In verse 20, which is where we'll finish in a minute, he tells us what man's attempts are to answer that question. How we try and make ourselves right with God and it won't work and it will never work and it can't work. And then in verse 21 onwards, he says, God has made a way for you. And that's what I've got to leave till next week. But let's finish in verse 20. Therefore, says Paul, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Man's way to be right with God, perform. Live better, be more moral, hit a certain pass mark, do enough good things in life to outweigh the bad things. It just won't work because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, the law that God gives us in the Bible is good and perfect and necessary for today, but it's not our saviour. We cannot be right with God by keeping it. What does the law do? End of verse 20. It makes us aware or conscious of our sin. As I lay my life next to the perfect life of Christ who fulfilled the law, I see all my failings and all my faults. It makes me aware of my sin and it drives me to a saviour. But we've got to grasp that people can't get to heaven by their own works, right? Grace says we're not good enough. Grace says in God's utter kindness, he's done it all for us already. Because even our best deeds are filthy rags, in the words of Isaiah.
There's only one that can put us right. And this is where I will finish this morning. Because there was one, the Lord Jesus, who stepped into the dock in my place and stood before a righteous God and pleaded guilty on my behalf that I may go free and be forgiven. And that's the gospel of grace. And when we get it, when we really get it, it won't only shake this world way, way more than 9-11, but it will make you dance inside because it's real and it matters and it takes people to heaven to live with their saviour forever. Why don't I invite the band to come back up and I'll pray for us and then we'll sing our final song together. Father in heaven, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for those who are sat here today that know and love that gospel. Have experienced the, the freedom that comes with being forgiven and being declared not guilty. I pray for my friends in this room that haven't yet trusted Christ. Lord, I pray in your kindness you would lead them there very soon, that we'd both come to, we'd all come to know and understand the truth and the richness of what it means to be found in Jesus on that final day. And we pray it for your glory. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing our final song, which I think is fitting. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus because the gospel is Jesus. So why don't we stand and why don't we sing together?
Do take a seat. People are welcome to stay around. There's going to be a little prayer corner over there if you want to chat and, and pray with somebody about things this morning or continue conversations over drinks out in the foyer through there. But let me finish by reading a few verses from the end of chapter 11 of Romans, a little doxology of praise, because when you get the gospel, then little moments of praise like this really make sense. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.